welcome to Mind Money Balance, the no guilt, no shame podcast to help you get your mind and money in balance. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm a financial therapist and coach, woman of color, and popcorn connoisseur. I am so glad you're here. Let's go. Today's guest is Violetta Danua. She is a clinical social worker and therapist whose work is grounded in a healing justice framework. This means she works with clients through a multidimensional lens that often incorporates psychoed on the influences of larger social systems on the mental health of her clients. She views mental health and wellness as presenting needs of the mind, body, spirit, and emotional selves. In addition to her role as a clinical social worker and therapist, she also serves on the board for the National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network. When not working, she can usually be found deeply engaged in her own inner work. You will hear more about that on today's interview and what it means fully to show up um, as a human in this world. She describes herself as a proud graduate of Wayne State University, Michigan State University, and the University of Michigan. Holy cow. Before we get into her interview, I just wanted to point something out that's a little bit more spiritual. We are in the midst of Sagittarius season, and as you will hear on the interview, Violetta herself is a Sagittarius. And what I think is really fitting, whether or not you follow astrology, is that the Sagittarius season, the shadow sign, the the underbelly of that season is being closed-minded, blunt, avoiding things or literally running away from things. Now, when you get in alignment, the power and the strength of Sagittarius is the freedom to live life in alignment with our unique values. The strengths, the gifts of a Sagittarius is being generous, finding inspiration, and finding abundance. I am so thrilled to share this interview with you because Violetta really embodies trusting her intuition and trusting in herself and in her unique needs. Enjoy. Violetta Danawa, thank you so much for coming on to the Mind Money Balance podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm so thrilled to chat with you. So why don't you give us a brief intro of who you are and what you do professionally and also just for fun? Yeah. So one of the things that I do, I wear many hats. The thing that I'm doing right now is working on my therapy practice. I've been a psychotherapist for a year. I think one of the most beautiful things about the way that I enter psychotherapy work is through community organizing, where I was doing a lot of community health and healing work, working with women of color and gender nonconforming healers in the city of Detroit, where I'm from. And so in doing that work, I realized that there were certain elements that felt really important to me holistically. And it seemed like clinical social work, which is how I got my training in therapy. That's really how I got introduced to me. And so I'm really excited to be doing this work. And for fun, oh my gosh, what do I do for fun? I dance around my apartment. I listen to music. I'm always just writing and jotting things and just trying to connect to folks in a super meaningful way and connect to myself in a very meaningful way as well. Yeah, it's been a, I mean, a lifetime, I imagine, 
and especially this year has really shown a light on the importance of learning and unlearning. And I love, you know, that you share so much of your journey. So if you're comfortable sharing, you took yourself on a little retreat this weekend. What did that entail? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for asking. So, okay. So I'm self-curating my own retreat at home. It's still happening. It's going to be for the week since my first year as a therapist was during 2020 when we have a pandemic and all these different things. I realized that I just needed to take a pause and take a beat. Mm -hmm. As therapists, healing practitioners, we often don't give ourselves that permission, right? So Sunday actually started the retreat. It's called the Rest Deeper Retreat. Rest Deeper is a mantra that I learned from a dear friend who got it from a dear friend of hers. And it's really this call to action to rest the body. The way that trauma shows up in the body, even secondary trauma, which we know as therapists, and healing practitioners in the world, we can really take that on. And so this is just an opportunity to slow down, treat myself really nice. I'm going to have a flower delivery coming later today. So I just want to be really sweet to myself. Yeah. Oh, I love that. It sounds so nice. And what I love about this practice is that, you know, we are beings who have been told from basically the time we arrived on on earth that we have to go more, do harder, like go, 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 be, 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 like nonstop. And particularly as therapists and as women of color, it's so important for us to take off that hat and just rest. And what I have found in cultivating rest, I'm terrible at rest. Let the record show I do not do a good job at it. But what I find about rest is that it doesn't have to be just stillness. Like for me, rest oftentimes is is going for a walk or watching like travel documentaries. Like it doesn't have to be holding still and meditating. So I love that yours is very multifaceted. So let's get into the money stuff. As much as you're comfortable, tell us a little bit about your money stories. What are some of the things that you believe and or some of the things that you've shifted? Fill us in on that. Yeah, I'd love to. So I actually jotted some things down because it's such an important question. I think for me, one of the first money stories that I had was that cultivating a relationship to money had to come through a specific lens. It was finance. It was this traditional commercial orientation. And just for me, one, there was a money belief that I'm not good at that. And so that is not the way I need to be wooed into cultivating my relationship to money. Yes. That's another story, right? We can talk about that in a moment, right? But how I first got introduced to what are you really thinking about your ability to call in abundance? I think that I would say the most transformative and the earliest money story that I have is going into this small business in Detroit called Tarot and Tea, very literal, sold tea, did various types of spiritual readings. And I got a spiritual reading and the practitioner there just suggested to me that you put aside money for the spiritual work that you'll need to do in the world. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if that meant therapy. I didn't know if that, I had no idea, but it had never dawned on me that this was a way that I can think about saving in a way that felt fun. It felt intrinsic. It felt unique to me. I could get on board without financial anxiety kind of getting in the way. Like it was just a different introduction. And so I think, and this was years ago, this was probably 2012. I think the bridge for that to this other underlying belief that 
traditional commercial finances. I don't like it gross. Ew, right? Like I actually needed this spiritual bridge to actually help me transform the ideas that I couldn't actually do financing and budgeting and all these different things in a traditional way. Yeah. Right. And so I think everyone kind of has to figure out for themselves, what is the thing that gets me through the door to really think about money in a way that's going to transform me and move me very, it moved me in a way where I have my own momentum, right? Yeah. So I'm not efforting about it. Yeah. So take us back to when you were trying to do money the traditional way. What did that look like? Oh my gosh. When I thought about money doing the traditional way, and this is kind of where some current traps can show up for me, is just thinking about what it meant to grow up working class, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what felt accessible and what feels accessible or not to working class people. So my mother is a retired nurse, born and raised in the city of Detroit. My father is an immigrant, born in Panama City, came over here and did work as an auto worker, worked in the plants until he retired. And so there was a time, right? So something interesting happened to me in my childhood. There was a time when you could be working for the plants in Michigan or whatever Midwest place you're in, and you could still have a middle-class life. Yeah. So you could work a working-class job and live a middle-class life. And then things started to change. The economy started to change. And those things that were accessible to somebody with uh, simply a high school education, they were no longer ex- acceptable. And so you needed more and more education. And so for me, it was like, okay, well, I have to get my undergrad degree because I can't do all the things that I want to do with a diploma. There are some people who might be able to do that work. That wasn't for me. But then I got to finishing college. And then by the time I finished college in 2008, the suggestion was, oh, you need a master's. You actually can't do anything with, you know, with a college degree. And so it felt like, because around 2008, 2009, we, we had the financial collapse and the the housing mortgage crisis and things like that. So it felt like for me as a working class person who's trying to live this American dream in some way, not, you know, just the way that we all kind of were groomed to think about it, K through 12, it kept getting just slightly out of my grasp. The economy kept shifting, something kept happening. And so to bring this back to the question, you know, just so much about the traditional ways that we think about money just felt like it swiftly I was there at the line of it and then the line would move. Yes. At the line again, then the line would move. And so what happens, right, is internalizing feelings of powerlessness, feeling defeated, knowing that there legitimately are variables that are bigger than you. And at the same time, just feeling like your personal power is also diminished in trying to reconcile what's happening. And Mm -hmm. so... Yeah. So I'll just kind of leave that question there. I, th- I think I answered that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I heard the traditional way of engaging with your money and the beliefs around money were that when you grew up, you saw something that worked, which was work a full-time job, a working class job, and you will be rewarded with a middle-class lifestyle. And that was the message that you'd been sold about money and you followed that path and even went on to college. And when you got to college, oh, just kidding, we are moving that line again, right? So there's no longer, you know, get a bachelor's degree or even a two-year degree, and then you can have a job that supports you. Now, actually, you have to have a master's. And then on you go to follow that path and, and go to get a master's. And so I'm curious, 
when you kind of ran into, wow, following this traditional ideology is no longer serving me. When did you have that aha moment that you couldn't keep following this path? Wow. Okay. I was trying to make this story short. (laughs) The moment that I got that realization. So, so right after undergrad, I went to a PhD program because I was like, okay, got it. I love social sciences. I majored in sociology in undergrad. And I was like, I want to go the the full way. I want to be a professor. This is how I'm going to, this is going to be my response to having had this working class upbringing and trying to, to, trying to attain a specific life that no longer seems accessible with an undergrad degree. Everybody was telling me you have to go to graduate school. So I said, great, I'm going to fast track this. I'm going to skip a master's program and go straight to the PhD. And what happened was during that time, again, there was a shift in the economy. And so many people that I knew who were graduating with their PhDs were going off to cities that they didn't really care about with communities that they had to figure out how to cultivate. And the PhD life is is no joke. I'm sure many of your listeners are acquainted with that reality. And I think for me, it got frustrating because I said, okay, the PhD is going to be my ticket. It's going to be my ticket. I see it. Clear as day. And then getting further along, having an itch two years in and be like, oh, I don't know, is this for me? And then just trying to sit tight and not judge the process too much was great at it. Like grades were great. Everything was great. But there was an internal thing like this isn't this isn't the path. You took this path because you thought it was going to be a ticket for this thing. Right. So it was a kind of a like a compensation. Right. But then you get inside something that you don't love. And so you have to ask yourself, like, what now? And so. For me, I started asking, it was scary. Lindsay, it was so scary to see the ticket to financial freedom and then realize that the pathway I was taking actually was like a soul killer. And so I was confronted with the reality. Do you follow your passion? Somebody's going to say that this is naive, this is silly, this is immature, whatever. Do you follow your passion or do you follow this thing that is supposed to get you through a door And you're seeing a lot of people actually not happy, like not being happy trying to get through that door. Right. And so for me, I'm a Sagittarius and we're not talking totally about astrology and spirituality right now, but I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to trust this. I'm going to trust that there's something, something else for me. And so I left. Mm -hmm. And so really I've been on this journey still asking, right? Like what does this money journey look like for me? And Mm -hmm. it always makes me come back to spirituality. It really Mm -hmm. does. It always makes me come back to like money is a metric for me of abundance. So actually the question that I'm asking myself is what type of abundance am I calling in? How am I stewarding that abundance? And so that can feel like a philosophical question, but the most interesting part of it is the implementation. Can I make this concrete? And so because financial abundance is an indicator of overall abundance amid other things, again, it leads me to force myself like, Can you confront some long-held money beliefs that when you follow your passions and you do what you feel called to do, in this instance, therapy being one of those things, can you still believe that you can make the money that you deserve? Can we work on that belief? Can we work on that mindset belief? So I think that's, that's the belief that I'm most concretely working on right now. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that story. I think it's so helpful because so many of my listeners and so many people who slide into my DMs, they're like, Lindsay, I'm doing all the things. I'm checking all the boxes. I'm doing what I was told. And yet I'm not seeing the type of results that I want. And it is that 
heartbreaking moment where you realize like what you've been sold isn't necessarily true. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you wake up and you realize you're in the matrix. It's so scary. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we have choices and it, it doesn't mean they're easy choices. But once we realize, look, there are other paths, there are other options, then we can actively choose to move towards things that are more in alignment with our values. And that also means calling in money because in the society in which we live, we do need money to not just survive, but to thrive. So let's get to your work and business. Who are the types of clients that you really love to see in your work? Yeah, I love to see clients who are ready for something to shift, mm-hmm. but they don't quite know what that is. Mm-hmm. And they don't quite know what the barriers are that are that the barriers that are in the way. Sure. And so these clients, many times they respond really well to holistic and somatic body-based work. So I love things like CBT. I think CBT is great. I think it's a great model. And at the same time, I like to dive deeper into doing work below the neck. Right. So one of the things that I adore about CBT right? It talks about feeling as a physiological sensation, as well as being interchangeable with an emotion. And so the clients that I'm working with, I always tell people, I give people the background on me during our intake consultations and all those things. But I like clients that are willing to be creative with their healing process. And these are clients from all backgrounds, right? All different SES backgrounds, all different racial backgrounds, all different gender backgrounds. There's something very interesting Um, and beautiful about those through lines in the human experience, right? And some of those through lines might be looking at the ways that trauma shows up for everyone, right? Even though it might be distributed differently because of systemic issues, but there's also wisdom that's a through line. And I love when, when the clients that I'm working with reach their own aha moment and something just clicks. And I think that comes from being a person that's willing to show up for whatever they need to show up for to make the breakthroughs that they need to make the breakthroughs for. Love it. Love it. Okay. So a few things there. One is that I am hearing from more and more therapists. I just got off another podcast recording with Alyssa Adams, who is an intuitive therapist and cultivating some more intuition into her practice. I'm hearing from you the importance of tapping into spirituality and our clients' wisdom. And what I am seeing happen in our field, and I'm so thankful for it, is that there's a shift. You know, we were all trained hard evidence-based practices. What does the research say? Follow this training manual, follow this particular intervention path. But what we are seeing again and again is that veering off doesn't mean doing harm to your clients. Veering off and within what is appropriate for your clients in their beliefs and their mindset can be so healing and so powerful. So I love that you fold those things in. And another thing I'm trying to do this season is really make sure that we define things because something that keeps us kind of on the outskirts, whether it's in our financial literacy or whether it's, you know, at arm's length from our mental wellness is just defining some jargon. So I heard a few things thrown out that I think would be helpful to clarify. So one was CBT and then one was somatic. So just really quickly, tell us what CBT is. Got it. So CBT is an acronym for cognitive behavioral therapy, and it looks at the relationship between thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and the situations that we find ourselves in. Somatics, um, somatics work feels a bit more complex to 
address, but the way that I was trained in somatics is politicized somatic work. And so it looks at the way that trauma and wisdom shows up in the body and the ways that either intergenerational trauma and or systemic trauma or systemic impact deeply impacts the body. So even if you're addressing things in your family, even if you're addressing things individually, are you looking at things happening in the world that reify some of the blockages that we might have to get the healing that we need? Great. Thank you for for those definitions. I always think it's just helpful. How does money show up in your practice? And I mean that in a couple of ways. That's a pretty broad question. So one is just how does it show up when you say, this is how much my services will cost? And then how does it show up just on, on your end as a business owner? Yeah. So for me, in terms of business, I think that the most difficult money conversation happens around insurance companies, honestly, because when you're a therapist, right, you have your fee for service. If people have insurance, then they're going to be also working with a third party. And insurance companies can feel, you know, just kind of like a, an enigma, right? And, and things shift. And so sometimes those conversations can be hard because even if you set certain fees, something might change slightly and you just got to talk about those things. So I think that is of course about money, but it also feels like there's a larger question around what does it mean to be able to communicate through discomfort? And money is just another indicator where you might be able to practice that or a conduit where you can practice that. For me, so I I work for a larger group practice. And so my individual practice or my individual business, like it's it's really nascent in its journey, it's in its beginning stages. But these money mindset questions are actually really informative because for a client or for a therapist or any person, I think it could be interesting when you realize I'm not sure what's possible, but I'm closer than I'm closer to what's possible than to what's not possible. Mm. And most people are in a space of like, what's not possible? I can't see it. It's not in front of my face. So it's not real. And I can't reach it. And so you're going to have to repeat for me the second part of the question. (laughs) How does money show up as as the business side? So first, thank you for, for breaking that down when it comes to talking to potential clients about your fees and about how it works. And then the other part is just... How do you cope with the the money side of being a business owner, right? It's a whole new thing when you're no longer getting a paycheck from an organization or institution, but you are kind of directly tied to what's coming in. Yeah, no, you have to make big, big decisions around that. And so one thing, okay, so there's two ways I can answer this question. For clients, just for my business and my fees, I do have a sliding scale fee. Mm-hmm. And that changes, right? If somebody's a part of a small organization, they're going to fit one place on that fee. If it's a larger institution, like, in, like a university that's asking me to speak, they have a much larger sliding scale. And the way that I put together my sliding scale is based on the needs for my business, my monthly budget, like everything has a very specific calculation and a formula. And so individuals who are needing sliding scale, like they have their own set fees as well. And so if I'm doing independent work for my own individual business, that looks one way. If I'm doing it out of my group practice, it looks another way. And so it's really about charting these things down, but making it make sense. So thinking about money and how you want to offer fees to particular entities, like it just has to have a formula because I think one of the reasons people feel guilty about their fees is because they actually don't know why they're charging what they're charging for. 
So if you map it out and reverse engineer it, if you know this is my yearly budget, and this this might be a lot, but this is my yearly budget. So therefore, this is what I need to make within a month. How do I break this down? How many clients do I need to break this down? If you want to do pro bono, if that's your thing, what is the the mark of when you've met that, when you've hit that quota or whatever you want to call the number, and it doesn't take away, right? It's a both and. It doesn't take away from your ability to be able to take care of your own financial needs. What I'm saying is so interesting. I'm so sorry. But a lot of it just varies. But it doesn't vary haphazardly. If it's going to vary, it needs to fit a formula that leaves you still able to take care of yourself and do the things that you need to do. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm nodding vigorously. Listeners obviously can't see us, but what I teach in my group coaching program, grow a profitable practice from the inside out is so similar to what you just said, where we take a look at what are the business's expenses and what are your personal expenses and setting a fee so that you can cover those expenses plus have a cushion rather than going, oh, you know, I Googled and, you know, most people are charging 125 an hour or most people are charging 200 an hour. So I guess I'll set my fees at that, right? So to really create a number based on your unique skills, offering, expertise, and what expenses you need to cover rather than just kind of picking a number out of thin air. So I love that you do that reverse engineer exercise. And I also love that your sliding scale is broader than what we typically see. And by that, I mean, we typically see, look at how much a person is bringing in and charge them accordingly. But what I love that you did to kind of flip that on its head is to also say, look, if corporations are going to hire me for speaking, I also know that they have the means. They also have a budget for speaking and public development, or I'm sorry, for professional development. So of course they can afford to bring somebody in and they're planning on spending that money. Um, I'm curious, what types of speaking topics do you like to speak on? Oh yeah. So I love to talk about mental health, of course, yes. I love to talk about self-care. And kind of demystifying self-care. I mm-hmm. see self-care as, as also a function of community care. Yeah. I love to talk about things related to somatic body work, meditation, different types of holistic tools. So, and particularly during times of crisis, right? When it's easy, so easy to forget those tools. It's, you know, it's just, especially right now, right? All the things that are happening. And also we still can't afford to like let ourselves go. And we got to figure that out. So I love doing like workshops and different lectures on those things. So, so cool. What are some of the tools that you use to engage with your money? And that might be like a budgeting app. It might be more of a spiritual practice. What are some of the things you do to cultivate a healthy relationship with your money? Yeah, I go to my altar. It's one of the places that I go. So in my particular spiritual practice, like we have an altar and we sit and converse with our ancestral line and we ask for support and different types of insights. So that's probably one of my frontline ways of, of, of negotiating and thinking about money because all of our money stories, even if we realize it or not, there's something, excuse me, intergenerational that's been passed down. We don't come to our own money vacuum, money stories in a vacuum. It doesn't just come from our parents. Our parents got it from somewhere. And so we really need to dig into that stuff. So a lot of that stuff also means I'm talking to my mom, right? Like I'm talking, I'm, ta- I'm literally also talking to the people in my family. Like 
what were you told? Because I need to understand why I was told what I, what I was told or why I didn't learn certain things. And so in certain families, talking about, talking about money can be rude. It can be right. And so what does it mean when you're trying to maintain manners and maintain politeness and you actually grow up doing that, right? Thinking that this is something that is, you know, you're, it's socially appropriate, but it's also getting in the way <laughs> of getting information. And so for me, it's just been a lot of professional conversations, of course, but I think that there's something particularly intimate and important about getting to the root of why, for me, why I think the way that I think, because it helps me identify a gap. And the way that I think is like, give me a gap. I can see the gap. Great. Got it. Cool. Now I know exactly how to move through a solution. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think even in your work, there's one of the money stories or a narrative that even if someone gets all the money that they might want, right, what are the deeply held beliefs that might still trap them in some way? Because they haven't got gotten at the root of why they want the money that they want. So for me, getting at the root is, is super key. Right, right. I love that. And what we know about money is exactly what you're talking about, that we don't just come to these ideas all on our own in a vacuum. We are informed by our family, of course, and our ancestors, of course. We're also informed by our culture, by our schools, by our religion and spiritual practices. So there are so many different things that intersect with the way that money shows up in our lives. And I love that you engage in money conversations with your mom. I think so many people do think, oh my gosh, this is awkward. This is uncomfortable. Do you some of your words? I don't want to be rude or impolite, but we know that it is so healing and so powerful, which is why I love, you know, the work that I do, which is talking about money because it helps to lift that veil on the shame and the embarrassment that so many people have around money. So when it comes to practicalities, are there certain tools or books that you really like when it comes to your money? Yeah. If I say financial anxiety, I'm not just putting that out there, but I think it's one of the best books out there. But also practicalities, right? Like having an accountant, right? There are some Mm -hmm. people who might be able to do QuickBooks or something like that. That's not really my jam. So Mm -hmm. how can you call in folks that can help you do the work that you need to do? So I'm also just very open with the people in my life. You know, talk about money. A really good friend of mine who is right now an interim director for the Detroit Equity Action Lab at the law school at Wayne State University, she would have these workshops for activists in particular. And because I came into therapy through through activism and community organizing, she would have these workshops for people in the community so that we could get to, you know, our money stories and the money stories that came about and that can come about when in activism spaces, right? So very similar to therapists, right? Like, There's a notion that money can be intrinsically a problem, but caveat, this has to go with that last part, is that there are other ways of currency. So money is a type of currency, but bartering and all these different things can be useful when it's with people that you love and know and trust. Mm -hmm. So I think those are the practical things, right? Workshops Mm -hmm. with people I trust. Like for me, I move at the speed of trust. The, The connections that I make and build on is because there's some deeply held trust and So yeah, so things like that and also something that might be traditionally commercial, like having an accountant, right? Things like that. Yes. Yes. Love it. And again, it's, it's that blend of what works for you. And what I keep hearing again and again from you is that 
you have to have both in order to have a healthy relationship with money. You can't just live in the world of QuickBooks and Excel and, you know, bottom line, you have to also live within the world of spirituality and tapping into what's going on in your body and in your mind as well. Violetta, this was such a fun conversation. I'm so glad people are able to hear your story. If people are interested in learning more about you and your work, where should they go? Yeah, people can find me at my website, which is www.violetadanoa.com. The spelling, I'm sure, is, will be in the show notes. And so that's the place where people can find me. Beautiful. Well, I will, of course, make sure to link it there and everyone can find you if they want to work with you or if maybe there's a corporate person listening and they need some good professional development, you know, reach out. Um, Well, thank you again and enjoy the rest of your rest deeper retreat. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Wasn't that interview so special. I'm so excited to to have had the opportunity to connect with her and I wanted to round up the takeaways. The first takeaway for me was the importance of slowing down. Oh my goodness, Violetta did such a nice job of talking about the importance of resting deeper. How amazing was that self-led time off? I know for me, I am a go, go, go person until I hit a wall and fall down and I need constant reminders to slow down to unplug and to rest. Now, when it comes to your money, I think this is so important to say, you know what? Sometimes I just need to take a break. Sometimes I need to look at my money from a slower pace. I don't need to do it all this very second. I know that for so many of my clients, they dive in and they want to go all in and they want to do everything. And then they do what I do and they hit a wall and they're like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm whooped, right? So slowing down, reconnecting, and resting as a part of cultivating a healthy relationship with money is the first takeaway that I got from my chat with Violetta. The second takeaway is the importance of folding in spirituality into our money work. Now, I have talked about this on this podcast and over on Instagram. I did a post a while back about different ways you can incorporate spirituality into your money. And I think Violetta did such a nice job of talking about how she had to come back to what is her body telling her? What is her intuition telling her? And how can she incorporate her unique beliefs into the way in which she folds money work into the unique ways in which she talks about money. And if you are curious about how to fold in spirituality and money, let me give you a few ideas. If you've been here for a little while, you know that I love to incorporate the moon cycle in my relationship with money. Full moons are a really good time to release things that aren't serving you. And new moons are a really beautiful and powerful time to plant new intentions when it comes to your money. So for me on full moons, I like to release money shame. I like to release the practices that are no longer serving me. And on new moons, I like to plant new financial intentions. Another way to incorporate spirituality into your money work is to journal on it, right? 
If you have a financial sticking point, try five to 10 minutes of free writing in response to an issue that's that's pressing on you. Try writing out the problem, set a timer, and just free write. Yeah, it doesn't have to be so carved out. It doesn't have to be so rigid, right? You can just do these things that feel good. Another spiritual practice that you can try is tending to a money tree or money plant. Literally Google it. They exist. They are a real thing. Buy it, water it, tend to a money tree or a money plant to cultivate a healthy relationship with money. Another thing that I love is to create a money vision board. Now with spirituality, it's not an either or. It's not just do these things and then everything else will happen. It's no, it's about folding spirituality in a way that works for you into the way in which you engage with your money. So if you're creating a a money vision board, you can cut out images, words, mantras, prayers that feel like they are in alignment with what you want to achieve in the next one, five, or 10 years. You can sit down and cut out images and words from magazines and catalogs and, and put them onto a poster board or onto a thicker piece of paper, right? So these are different ways you can incorporate spirituality into your relationship with money if maybe the ways that I've been talking about it or the ways that Violetta talked about it didn't necessarily align with you. That's totally fine. Which brings me to my final takeaway from my conversation with Violetta is pivoting when something isn't working, right? She shared, look, I tried going to college and following the path and, you know, thinking that the PhD would be my ticket to security. And she said, you know what? That didn't work. I needed to check in with what felt best for me and pivot accordingly. You know, this sounds very familiar to the last episode, episode 35 with Joe Sanok on how he said, look, the way that my parents cultivated a relationship with money doesn't necessarily work anymore because the world has changed. So when it comes to your relationship with money, give yourself permission to change the way you're engaging with it if it is no longer working with you. So those are the three takeaways. Take time to rest, take time to fold spirituality into your money practices and give yourself permission to pivot if something isn't working. If you loved this episode, please, please, please make sure that you rate and review this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Reviews and ratings, specifically reviews though, they help other people to find this podcast. And I would love to share this message with more people. And thank you in advance for taking the time out to rate and review this podcast. And I will see you next time do me a favor, would ya? Please rate and review this podcast on your podcast player of choice. And while you're there, double check that you're subscribed to the Mind Money Balance podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for your support. I'll see you next week. or guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, medical, or other professional information. If you want professional help, please seek it out.